We're going to be staying in Exodus chapter 4, if you're still there in your Bible, and seeking to work through 4.1 to 6.27. Exodus is the book about God's name. It reveals who he is. It reveals his nature, his likeness, his character. It's a book about evangelism and discipleship in his name. It's an expression of God's missionary heart for the nations. And in teaching through this book in Sunday school, many have answered the call to go out for God's name by serving sometimes temporarily in children's ministry. One has gone to seminary and others have moved to Germany because people have responded to the message of Exodus, there has been an exodus of people out of Exodus class, which means we have room for more. If you'd like to join us in Exodus class at nine in the morning in room four, it's a special time of fellowship and discussion and study of God's word, and perhaps you'll be able to be one of those who goes out for the sake of the name from Exodus class, and we can at a later date, talk about what chapter you left class. <laughs> Today, we're going to be working through about three chapters in, in Exodus, which means we can't go into looking at every detail, but we're going to be able to hit some highlights throughout this section of Scripture. If you remember back in July, the last time we were in this text together, Yahweh revealed from the burning bush who he is. Uh, he is who he is. God is God, and he will be who he will be. But we also see that Moses isn't believing these things. Moses isn't listening. And it looks like everything could just fall apart here at this point in Scripture. You know, God has a plan to reveal his name, but does he have a man who will carry on that name? Does he have a people who will spread his glory to the ends of the earth or will everything fall apart here well what we've seen is that the sons of israel have been fruitful and multiplied due to god's faithfulness to his covenant with abraham and the patriarchs but will they be fruitful and multiply concerning god's purpose to spread the fame of his name not only from israel but also to egypt and to the nations and to the ends of the earth Moses at this point has been questioning God rather than listening to God. And Moses even presupposes that the sons of Israel won't believe or listen. And we already know that Pharaoh's not going to listen, or he won't believe, but will he listen? This point looks like it might be the end of the book unless something drastic happens. Will anyone believe or listen to God? Because if not, God's plan and his purposes are sunk. What if they won't believe or listen to God? Well, in chapter 4, we see Moses here questioning God and saying, well, who am I? And God reminds Moses, I will be with you to change his focus from himself to the God who is with him. And Moses also had questioned in chapter 3, uh, what if they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God responded, I am who I am. I am has sent me to you. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the one who revealed from the burning bush that he's self-existent and self-sustaining, that nobody starts him or keeps him going. But he's also the God who is transcendent, transcendent and relational. He's from heaven, but he comes down to earth. But now in chapter 4, as Moses keeps asking his questions, he asks a third question in chapter 4 and verse 1. What if they will not believe me and will not listen to my voice? For they may say, Yahweh has not appeared to you. Moses assumes the unbelief of the sons of Israel, he presupposes they're not going to listen, that they're 
kind of like him in a lot of ways. But if you look back in chapter 3, verse 18, here's what Yahweh said. They will listen to your voice. But Moses is saying, well, yeah, but what if you're wrong? God demonstrates a lot of patience with this guy. A lot of patience with the stubborn questioning evangelist, discipler, and training. Will God's people listen? Will they listen to him? Well, only if he performs what he promised when he said, they will listen to your voice. And God, in evangelizing these people and in discipling Moses, he provides three instructive signs in response. One is a staff, the other's a hand, and the other is water. A staff that turns into a serpent that's turned back into a staff, a hand that is diseased and then healed, and then water that is turned to blood. Well, let's consider these three signs that God has given here in order and what they instruct. The first one being the staff serpent. The staff here is a symbol of God's strength. God has power over everything in creation. In fact, he has the power to create and control a serpent like that one in the garden. And not to only control that visible serpent, but the invisible power behind the serpent. He has the, the strength to create and control a king like the Pharaoh in Egypt and to control the power behind him as Ezekiel talks about when he prophesied, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh king of Egypt, the great monster that lies in the midst of his canals of the Nile that has said, My Nile is mine and I myself have made it. I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your canals of the Nile cling to your scales and I will bring you up out of the midst of your canals of the Nile and all the fish of your canals of the Nile will cling to your scales. I will abandon you to the wilderness. You and all the fish of your canals of the Nile, you will fall on the open field You will not be brought together or gathered. I have given you for food to the beast of the earth and to the birds of the sky. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt will know that I am Yahweh because they have been only a staff made of reed to the house of Israel. What is it that God can do in his strength that's taught by this staff serpent? sign. It teaches that God is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over the visible and the invisible, over life and death, over evil and good. He can even control evil like the serpent, the pharaoh, and other rulers and the evil power behind them. So what is the purpose of the staff? So that you may believe in the creator controller of creation and have a certain hope that all will ultimately listen to his knee-bowing word. But why does God do this? Why does there have to be a staff and a serpent and all of these things involved? Well, the next sign instructs us concerning that with the hand that God both diseases it and heals it. God can also create and control the most feared disease at this time in history, which was leprosy. God is teaching here what he said to a later generation of Israel in Deuteronomy 32, see now that I, I am he and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded and it is I who heal and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. What we see here is that God has ordained Israel's affliction as much as he has ordained Israel's deliverance. You'll remember the prophecy of their 400-year affliction from Genesis 15 given to Abraham. God rules everything by his word. By his word from they will be afflicted to his word of I will deliver. 
God is sovereign over everything in his creation. And there's, there's nothing that's outside of the sphere of his strength. There's no autonomous zone where some things are free to do as they will. He puts to death and he gives life. He wounds and he heals. And nothing can cause anything to work contrary to the will of his decree. But why show his strength this way and in these things? So that you may believe that God controls the wounding as much as he also controls the healing and have certain hope that he will indeed heal. But how will he do this? Well, that's what the third sign, water to blood, answers. This is how he's going to do this. This is how he's going to heal the temporary wound of the serpent. It's going to be water and blood. The water and the blood are both going to testify. The blood of Hebrew baby boys would cry out from the Nile for righteous vindication. The water and the blood will be God's gospel testimony of him identifying with his people and being the salvation of his people. Well, why three signs as witnesses to the sons of Israel? I mean, why not just one? Why does there need to be two to three? Well, one reason is to evangelize belief, and the other is to prosecute unbelief. You see in verse 5 of chapter 4 that it, they're meant to evangelize belief, that they may believe that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you, but also to prosecute the existing unbelief that we see in verses 8 and 9. And so it will be if they will not believe you or listen to the witness of the first sign that they may believe the witness of this last sign. But if it will be that they will not believe these, even these two signs and that they will not listen to your voice, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry land and the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry land. Here we see two to three witnesses against the unbelief of the sons of Israel and the fact that they don't want a relationship with God. These signs display that they need more than just a land exodus. They need a heart exodus because people are still people wherever you move them. These three signs display in the staff serpent that God's strength is over the serpent, over Pharaoh, over the visible and invisible, over life and death, over evil and good. And in the sign of the healed hand, it shows God's strength that it's involved in the wounding and the healing. And the sign of water to blood, it shows that his salvation plan is through judgment. And when he acts, some will be destroyed and others will be delivered. God's three signs here testify to unbelief, but they also call to true belief. They were signs that were given specifically to a, a self-focused Moses, that he would be a God-focused testifier of God's truth. And continuing in chapter 4 and verses 10 through 17, we see that it is God who is with Moses who will reveal these things and he'll also be the one who will instruct him. The instructor will be with you to instruct is what is taught to Moses. If you look at verse 10, you see how Moses responds with rebellion and his rebellion is in poetry, which I think the, the Legacy Standard Bible translation captures well in 4.10, it says, Please, Lord, I have never been a man of words, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your slave, for I am one with a hard mouth and a hard tongue. The Hebrew text behind this translation is very poetic and eloquent in nature. It's not the words of the wordless, but a wordsmith. Please, Lord, my tongue cannot bear the weight. And my words are always late. 
Plus, I've never been first rate, having a mouth like a crate, teeth like nails, tongue like hammer, hard mouth, hard tongue, I fear I'll stammer. Moses' problem was not a hard mouth, as Stephen would testify later in Acts 7.22, that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was powerful in words and deeds. God had gifted his messenger, but he had not only gifted his messenger, but as the one who has all authority in heaven on, on earth, he also promised to be with him to make him a disciple-making disciple. Moses' problem here is that he would not believe, that he would not listen. And so God rebukes Moses' rebellion in verses 11 through 12, saying, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? So now go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and will instruct you what you shall speak. He explains to Moses, you don't define me. You don't define my message or the man that I choose to carry that message. I'm the creator and you're the creation. So go and I'll even be with your speaking and I'll even instruct you in what to say. This sounds like the best possible situation for God's messenger, that God would be with him and instructing him. But how does Moses respond in verse 13? He basically says, here I am, Lord, send somebody else. I don't have the gift of evangelism. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to answer some people's questions. I'm not Ray Comfort. Send somebody else. Well, in verse 14, we see the gracious, slow-burning anger of Yahweh. And Yahweh points out Moses' older brother, Aaron, the Levite, to be a priest for the prophet who is Moses, in a sense. And Moses won't show up complaining and questioning. He'll show up glad in heart. But we know, because we've read more of this story, that it was Moses that was called and chosen. Aaron was not. Aaron, in fact, is a pushover. He's going to be the golden calf guy. But in these verses here, we also see how God's word works in God's world, especially in verse 15. It says, you're to speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will instruct you in what you shall do. Moses would be as God to Aaron, teaching him what to say. And something of God's relationship to Moses would be seen in Moses' relationship to Aaron. The withness and the instruction of God would come to him and through him. And God not only gifted his messenger, but as we see here, he graciously promised to be with him and to instruct him. And this relationship helps us to understand how we're to understand how God's word works in God's world. Similar to what's said in 2 Peter 1.20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own origination. For no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men being moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This was true even of Jesus himself, the prophet who was greater than Moses. He did not speak his own words, but the words of the Father. He spoke as he was instructed based on the Father's authority, and he announced the commandment which is eternal life as the Father told him to do. Similarly, and following our Lord's own example, we don't rely on our ability and instruction, but we rely on God's ability and instruction. And we hear his commission to spread God's word to God's world for his glory to the ends of the earth, to the end of the age. We shouldn't be self-focused 
doubters, but God-focused believers who listen to that great commission. The scales of redemptive success don't tip on the weight of human strength, but on the weight of God's glorious strength to carry out his promises through the creation which he is the one who has all authority over. God can make a misused mouth a righteous used mouth. God can make the mute speak, the deaf hear, and the blind see. We should be very careful about saying, well, God, I could never be a witness for you like that. I mean, who am I? And I mean, what if somebody asks me a question I don't know how to answer? And what if they won't believe me or listen to me? Please, Lord, I've never been a man of words or a person to be heard from yesterday to present day or any day. Pick somebody else. Do you hear the self-focus and rebellion that's wrapped up in those heart attitudes and those sort of things that we are given to say from time to time? We need to be reminded, just as Moses did, that you just need to get over yourself. Who made you? Give God the glory that he deserves. The question's not, who am I, but who is he? Who is it that's with me? What question does his word not answer? And he's the one who determines if somebody believes or listens, not us. And he's the one who made us for his glory. We can trust him to do his work the way that he has chosen to do it. He's not only the God who has gifted you exactly how he has chosen to gift you in his wisdom, but he's also the God who is with you. And he will instruct you in instructing others. But to become this type of person who believes in God and listen to God takes a radical transformation. It's not natural, it's supernatural. It's something that only God can do. And we see God do this work, begin this work in Moses in 4.18. Picking up in 4.18, Moses begins making his way back to his brothers in Egypt with a growing family and a reminder of God's strength as he carried the staff of God in his hand. And Yahweh tells him in verse 21 to perform all the miraculous wonders which I have put in your hand, that you do them before Pharaoh, but as for me, I will harden his heart with strength so that he will not let the people go. Well, why does God do this? Why does he harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, so that all the miraculous wonders will be done. So Pharaoh won't tap out on plague three or plague six, but God's going to perform all of his miracles. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, in order to demonstrate my power in you, and in order that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And even now we're still recounting God's name throughout all the earth from this very ancient event. In verses 22 to 23, Yahweh tells Moses to tell Pharaoh this, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. You see here that Pharaoh tried to kill God's firstborn, but God will kill Pharaoh's firstborn. God will bring his firstborn back to his rightful master in protective fatherly love. He will do what he promised to do to Abraham. He will curse those who curse you. And his salvation will involve both destruction and deliverance. The salvation of God's firstborn will be the death of Pharaoh's. And Egypt will strike at Israel's heel while Israel's God would strike Egypt's head. And you see here that in God explaining how 
the first thing that happens is Pharaoh's heart is hardened and then Israel is released. God is giving Moses the game plan. This is how it's going to work. Pharaoh's heart hardened, then Israel released. And we have this other issue here still looming of Moses. Moses needs to become the kind of covenant leader who would be obedient to that. He needs to not be a hypocrite like Pharaoh. Moses needs to move from being mistaken as an Egyptian, like when he delivered the shepherding girls, and he needs to do what the Egyptian Pharaoh won't and hasn't, believe and listen. Now, before I read this next section, I want to try to help you to hear it perhaps in the way that the sons of Israel did when they received this book of Exodus while they were already in the wilderness. So all of these things had already happened. They had had children who would be taught about this event which they hadn't witnessed themselves. And so the context of this event ends up being Genesis through Deuteronomy. So to help you to see what's happening here, I'm going to give you a quiz. What event in the Bible involved the threat of death for the firstborn, people being let go to serve God, blood, and circumcision? What event involved all of those things in the Bible? It's kind of a trick question, so I get your hesitancy. <laughs> Passover. Now, I want you to think about those elements of Passover and how Moses is to be what Israel needs. He needs to be one with them. So before they go through Passover, he needs to go through Passover. So I'm going to read to you Moses' Passover in verses 24 to 26. Now, it happened at the lodging place on the way that Yahweh encountered Moses and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched his feet with it. And she said, you are indeed a, a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time she said, you are a bridegroom of blood with reference to the circumcision. There's several firstborns that have been introduced to us here. Yahweh has a firstborn. That's the sons of Israel. Pharaoh has a firstborn, you know, the next to his throne. And Moses has a firstborn. His name was Gershom. But what happens to someone's firstborn in the Passover if they're not circumcised and blood doesn't cover the household? How does someone find themselves to be of Yahweh's firstborn rather than of Pharaoh's? What distinguishes an Egyptian from a son of Israel? Well, it's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, which was circumcision. That would be the sign of being in Abraham's family. But we see here, Moses hadn't believed and listen to God's command to circumcise his son as a child of Abraham. His family didn't look like an Israelite family yet. He can't be one with the sons of Israel if he won't listen to the instruction of the God of Israel. And because of his disobedience, Yahweh attacks him. Something happens to him and the situation is desperate. It looks like Zipporah could lose her husband and her son. And recognizing that the situation is, desire, is dire and the issue with her afflicted bridegroom is related to their firstborn not being circumcised, what does she do? Well, the family can only enter into the Abrahamic covenant by circumcision. But you see, the problem here is that Moses was acting like Pharaoh by preventing his firstborn from entering into that covenant to serve the Lord. 
Moses needed to become a real covenant leader, not a hypocrite who would tell others to do what he was unwilling to do and hadn't done. He needed to become one with the sons of Israel. He needed corporate solidarity, not only with his family, but also the nation to be. And only believing and listening to God could resolve this. Moses and Zipporah's firstborn Gershom here is referred to as her son, not their son, because Moses had yet to truly claim his son as a son of Israel through circumcision. And in desperation and clarity of mind, Zipporah circumcised Gershom for the life of her bridegroom and her firstborn. This is what we know in theology as substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary blood atonement was made on behalf of Moses and his son. And just as Jacob was touched on the hip and renamed Israel, Moses' feet are touched with the sign of the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he is remade a son of Israel. The wrath of God passed over Moses in this painful, humbling reminder that he was walking like an Egyptian until God made him to walk like a son of Israel. In a moment of rejoicing, Zipporah said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. I got my husband back. My son is going to live because of the blood of circumcision. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant is on our household. We're no longer under judgment, but blessing. The issue at stake was the life or death of the firstborn, the life or death of the head of the family. And a son must be circumcised in order that they might live. This was a hard but significant day. The painful rebirthing of a new family into Abraham's family through circumcision in blood. No doubt similar to the day when the sons of Israel would begin becoming the nation of Israel when they would take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. Jacob's touched hip to Moses' touched feet to the Israelites' touched door jams. Their circumcised sons and the blood would be the sign to God's wrath to pass over. Moses was being shaped into the leader that he needed to be in these events. He was being taught the leadership lessons that his actions would have consequences for himself and those under him. He needed a life that was submitted to God, and this family tragedy was used to teach him that. He learned that you can't lead if you don't follow. And what you're telling others, you're supposed to be a part of it too if you're going to truly identify with them and lead them and be one, of, be one with them. Moses wasn't letting his own son go to serve Yahweh. He was more like an Egyptian pharaoh than an Israelite prophet. But God refined him and started building into Moses, believing and listening, trusting and obeying, making him the right kind of person. Moses left Egypt as an Egyptian, but now he's returning to Egypt with his Israelite family no longer a foreigner to the sons of Israel, and his son is now ready for the Passover. Moses is now prepared to speak to the sons of Israel as a son of God fights for you, which is what the name Israel means. Moses and Aaron now meet up together, and the signs are performed before the sons of Israel. And they communicate God's care and his awareness of what had happened to these people who were afflicted. 
But in this instance, Moses' leadership isn't rejected by his brothers, but he's accepted because now he's one with the many. Israel believed when they heard about Yahweh's care concerning their affliction and they worshiped. But there's still a big problem in the way. Pharaoh. What does Pharaoh think about God's plan? He definitely won't believe, but will he listen? Will he bow the knee? In chapter 5, we read of Pharaoh, the anti-Sabbath serpent. Pharaoh, the anti-Sabbath serpent. Moses and Aaron had success and trouble all on the same day. They had a glad reunion together with the elders of Israel, only to finally go out and speak to an obstinate Pharaoh. And God's word is revealed through his prophet, and here's how Pharaoh responds in chapter 5 and verse 2. Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh that I should listen to his voice to let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and also I will not let Israel go. The book of Exodus is all about answering that question, who is Yahweh? What is his name? And the answer is developing, and it'll come in time to Pharaoh, and it'll come in unmistakable power. But for now, Pharaoh challenges Yahweh's existence. I don't even think that he exists. I don't even think that he has the ability to speak. I don't know him, and if I did, any way about it, I refuse to listen to him. Pharaoh's heart is hard, which we should be reminded, and Moses could have remembered, everything's going according to plan. Pharaoh's heart is hard. That must mean that the next thing that happens is Israel gets released. Pharaoh's hardened heart itself is part of the answer to the question he asked, who is Yahweh? The answer you're seeing is, he's the God of all creation, not Pharaoh. He's the ruler of kings, not Pharaoh. The, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he pleases, Proverbs 21.1. And Yahweh is the one who makes his name great while making Abraham's name great just like he promised. Moses and Aaron, as they come to the obstinate Pharaoh who is anti-Sabbath, anti-resting from their works, they only request a three days journey. Just three days, that's it. Which really highlights Pharaoh's unreasonableness. They didn't ask, can we leave forever? They only asked to leave for three days. But they're also requesting to sacrifice to Yahweh rather than to Pharaoh and to go outside of Pharaoh's jurisdiction and into the wilderness. In Exodus 5, verses 4 through 5, it says, The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you loose the people from their works? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now many, and you would have them Sabbath from their hard labors? That's my translation, by the way. So if you're like, why didn't I see that in my Bible? <laughs> Those are in the, the footnotes, probably, of whatever translation you have. And what you're seeing here in this discussion of people being loosed from their works and their burdens and ceasing or resting or sabbathing from hard labors is that God is going to turn Israel's labor in Egypt into worship of their deliverer. Jesus, in picking up on this concept of the God of the Sabbath rest being the one who will bring them into that rest, says this, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's not like Pharaoh and the power behind him. Well, in verse 5, we see that the people of the land were many, but we need to remember, well, why was it? Why is it that these people are many? Well, because of God's creation purpose of being fruitful and multiplying for the sake of his name, of God's covenant promises to Abraham to make this people be fruitful and multiply. Uh, Pharaoh's upset about this. He wants that people for himself rather than for God. He's upset that this people might cease or rest from their labors. And this is the first time that the word Sabbath is used in the book of Exodus. And it shows that Pharaoh's against it. He's anti-Sabbath. He's anti-rest and pro-works. But God's creation purpose, as we read about for the seventh day all the way back in Genesis 2, is that his purpose for his creation is rest. And we see this continued and developed throughout God's covenant to Noah, that he would indeed bring that rest. His covenant to Abraham and the patriarchs, that he would provide a seed who would be the one who would bring people back into God's rest. And that later we'll learn through the Mosaic Covenant, which is an instructor that teaches about a week that ends on the Sabbath until the Sabbath becomes the first day of every week and even the only day with no evening or morning. Well, Pharaoh, as we see through this section, is an oppressive deceiver. Now, it was common in this day for rulers to allow their slavers to take off work and to go sacrifice to their God. But Pharaoh rejects their religious exemption, as it were, and he makes life harder in a satanic attempt to usurp God's authority. He says in 5.9, let their slavery be hard on them and let them work at it so that they will have no regard for false words. And in verse 17, he goes on to say, you are lazy, lazy. Therefore, you say, let us go and sacrifice to Yahweh. Here you see Pharaoh ratcheting up the propaganda machine and calling true words false words and their burdensome work being lazy. All of this was to deceive everybody, to demoralize people, and to distract them from God's truth. It's similar to the time that we lived through and heard in response to religious exemptions that were submitted to, well, just let them wear two to three masks if they don't like it, and to get two to four booster shots and pay for it themselves, and work from home under camera surveillance so that they will have no regard for conspiracy theories. We see that there is a war on truth that is ongoing. It's Satan's lies versus God's truth, and that there's many lies, but there's only one truth. And there's a battle over, well, who's really the head of God's people? And who is God's people to identify as their head and their instructor? Who's the one that instructs if they can meet and how they will meet? Well, we see here, Pharaoh wants to define those things. He wants to define the doctrine and practice of a people who don't rightfully belong to him. In the end, Pharaoh's words will fail, and Yahweh's word will prevail. The sons of Israel are essential in God's plan. But in this moment, things look and feel very bleak for the sons of Israel so much so that they were deceived by the deception and the lies that were being propagated and propagandizing the people during that time. Who was it that they were to really slave for? Who was it that they were to work for and belong to? You see the deception in chapter 5, verse 14, where it reads, Moreover, the foremen of the sons of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten. 
and were asked, why have you not completed your required amount either yesterday or today in making brick as previously? Here the Pharaoh tries to deceptively make it look like he's the one who's doing the affliction. Uh, he's the one who is the hand of affliction brought upon them rather than the God who said those things to Abraham back in Genesis 15. But do not be deceived. It is God who is doing the wounding and will be doing the healing. And he's so powerful that he controls both. But who is it that the sons of Israel identify as their king in verse 15? It says in verse 15, Then the foreman of the sons of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why do you deal this way with your slaves? Do you see the satanic plot here to get the sons of Israel to cry out to Pharaoh rather than the Lord and to see themselves as Pharaoh's slaves rather than the Lord's slaves? They were deceived. They were demoralized and distracted from the truth. A caution to us to be careful how you view earthly rulers. Who is it that we're really to cry out to when things are difficult? To remember in whose kingdom your citizenship truly lies and to not be distracted with a lesser constitution than that of being a kingdom of priests whose number one value is faith in God. God's people throughout history experience failure, as we see it, on a regular basis in a world of pharaohs who seek to enslave us to their false worldview, their anti-God preferences and anti-creation biases. We see this perhaps more clearly than ever in our own day in false views of family government, marriage, gender, and education, civil government, church government, and the treatment by the family of the serpent to the family of the woman can be harsh and it can make a people feel hopeless. But these defeats are only apparent defeats. They only look like defeat, but God's going to use them for a victory that he's had planned all along. But these apparent defeats, they, they test our hearts. They examine our hearts to show us what's really in there. What are we really trusting in? Is our number one value really faith in God, or are we trusting in something else? And we must remember that behind every evil and hardened heart is a sovereign God who's in control of that heart and he's working his wise plans for his name and his people. Well, now we come back to grumbling Moses who continues to question and contradict God's word in 5.22 to 23. Moses returned to Yahweh and he said, Oh Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. The oppression of the beast Pharaoh has had an influence on Moses. In fact, it's left the image of that beast on Moses' thinking and living. Moses is questioning and contradicting God's good word, very much like that beast of the field, the crafty serpent. Moses is unbelieving. Moses hasn't learned God's game plan. He doesn't understand who Yahweh is. Which raises the question, will anybody believe or listen to Yahweh? And if they were, what is it that they're supposed to believe exactly? Well, what they're to believe is found in chapter 6, beginning in verse 2. And here we read the heart of the book of Exodus. What is, to believe, what is to be believed about Yahweh's name? We see that here in the heart of the book of Exodus, beginning in 6.2. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. 
And I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, I was not known to them. And I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in slavery. And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh. And I will bring you out from under the hard labors of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their slavery. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out from under the hard labors of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. Previous generations knew the title Yahweh. It was a word that Abraham used, but they didn't know the essence of Yahweh that would be revealed here. That is, they didn't know the experience of having that affliction broken and being redeemed as this generation of Israel would. What we're seeing here is the difference between a, a title and God's character. Yahweh isn't merely a title. It's a word that reveals his essence. It reveals who he is and what he's like, that he's faithful. He's faithful to his covenant. He's a redeemer. And there's a difference between just calling him Yahweh and experiencing his delivering love. There's a difference between knowing about him and knowing him. There's a difference between merely calling him Lord and calling him Lord and doing what he says. In 6.9, it tells us how the sons of Israel responded to this great proclamation of covenant promise. It says, they did not listen to Moses on account of their weakness of spirit and hard slavery. So Moses goes on to question in verse 12, well, if that's the case, how then will Pharaoh listen to me? God needs to overcome unbelief and the lack of listening in Moses and Israel and Pharaoh and Egypt. And the burden of Success and people believing and listening doesn't fall on any of God's people. God is the one who governs all these things. All the governing of belief and listening and what will happen rest on his shoulders alone. And what God has started, he will finish. Many will believe and everybody will listen. But at this point, Moses is taking the people's deafness to God's word personally, while also demonstrating a personal deafness in himself. And can this Moses be the Exodus Moses that we're all familiar with, the famous deliverer of the book of Moses? Can this same Moses be made into a different Moses? Can temptations to question and contradict God's word be overcome? Can such a heart really be changed to believe and listen to the Lord? Well, to answer that question, we need to turn to Israel's family photo album, which we pick up on verse 16. Their photo album is known also as a genealogy. We're not going to look at everybody in the genealogy, but there's certain people who were highlighted in the family tree to show that God straightens out crooked branches in the family tree. And he has a plan that he's been working out for a, from a long time ago, back in Genesis 3.15, and it's continuing on and it's developing. I'm just going to give you some quick highlights which are emphasized in this genealogy in this family photo album of Israel's family tree that show that God is faithful to his seed promise. As you look through here, there's a lot of people in here. 
That's not just a small family, it's a growing family. God's been faithful for this people to be fruitful and multiply. But who is the seed that's going to come and crush the serpent's head? Who's going to be the family head who redeems this family? Well, all of these family connections that are being made define for Israel who they are and why they exist. It says, you're these people. You're related to these people and these things in history, and you exist for these things in history so that they would see God's carrying out his plan. Being fruitful and multiplying has happened. We can have hope in God because we can trace where the seed's going to be born from. And what happens with the genealogies throughout Scripture is that None of them are exhaustive, but they're always focused on tracing down who's the seed. And what happens here is there's a focus on the line of the priest and the line of the king. So, look in verse 19, at the end of that verse, it says, these are the family of the Levites. And what are the Levites known for? The priesthood. It says, and according to their generations, and Amram took his father's sister, Jochebed, as a wife, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. And the years of Amram's life were 137 years. Now you fast forward in verse 23, it says, And Aaron took Elisheba, the daughter of Amminadab, the sister of Nashon, as a wife, and she bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. Well, what's so important about Aaron and the priestly family marrying a daughter of Amenadab. Well, she's from the tribe of Judah. And you can read Matthew to see how that all comes together. But what you're seeing is that whoever this deliverer is, he's going to be a merging of the priestly line and the kingly line. Did he the line of the priest and the king is going to merge into one man at some point. And so Aaron marries into the tribe of Judah, and this develops in the genealogy of Ruth that ties this guy into being the son of David, which Matthew picks up on. He says, the most important thing I want you to know about my genealogy is Jesus Christ, the son of David. Let me explain. And then he gives you the rest of the genealogy to connect to the Lion of Judah from the line of Judah. The priestly kingly lines will merge in Jesus, but he won't be a king from a priestly lineage according to Levi, but according to Melchizedek. He's not going to have a temporary priesthood, but an eternal one. And he's the only one in history who can fulfill being prophet priest, and king simultaneously. And to do so in corporate solidarity with people, with his people, and be the one who represents the many as their prophet, priest, and king. Well, what about Aaron and Moses? You can think about the people of Israel. You know, they didn't know Aaron and Moses like this. They knew them after Moses was the one who came down from the mountain with the law and powerfully proclaimed it to the people. You know, they, they knew that the Aaron who labored sacrificially in offering up sacrifices continually before the temple, before God. So you think about as a kid having your dad or granddad read to you the book of Exodus and like, Aaron and Moses? You mean the same Aaron and Moses? Well, look at the end of, toward the end of chapter 6 and verses 26 and 27, and we get the answer here. It says, it was the same Aaron and Moses to whom Yahweh said, bring out the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their house. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the sons of Israel from Egypt it was the same Moses and Aaron. It was the same Aaron and Moses indeed, whom God had shaped into the men who were before your eyes today, inquisiting child. Like, Dad, do you mean Aaron the priest was really like that? 
You mean Moses, the humblest man who ever lived, used to question and contradict God? Yeah, same guys, same God, and he can do the same thing to you. Have you ever heard somebody's testimony about how Jesus transformed their life? And you said, are we really talking about the same person here? Uh, you really don't sound like the person who was a, a likely believer or likely to listen to anything that God says. And their response being something like, well, I know, but it, it's all the Passover lamb of God who was slain for a sinner like me to make me a saint who would sit at the Lord's table and in a family tree of crooked branches that have been made straight. Will anyone believe or listen to the Lord? Well, yes, if he gives them the gift of belief and a listening heart. But what about those who won't believe? Well, they will listen. They will bow, as Scripture says, not as a rescued slave to gracious master, but as a condemned criminal to their just judge. God has that kind of sovereignty and strength. Our gracious Lord, we thank you that you are our salvation, that you are our strength, and that you are the song that we sing. You are the melody of our life to rejoice in you and to speak of you, to hear of you, to know of you and to make you known as our great joy. And we thank you of these truths that you have revealed to teach us your name, to teach us what you are like, that you are the God who changes us, that we would not be any longer in slavery to sin and the burden of works, but to be saved to a slavery to you and a yoke that is easy and is light. We thank you for the rest that is in you and that we can celebrate that in your great glory in doing such things. Amen.